All right, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses of that. So last week we dealt with the topic of sin, and the title of our message last week was We Deal With Sin. Um, Tonight the title is We Handle Judgment, because whenever you're before a holy God, sin is judged as sin and righteousness as righteousness. He is the judge of all things. And if you look in the very end of chapter number 5, which is where we left off last week, he says in verse 12, Paul, of course, is writing to the Corinthian church. He gives them a big thing about the man who is sleeping with his mother or his uh, his stepmother. And he says, uh, we don't even eat with those kind of people, but judge those who are on the inside of the church. And then he says, for, in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are also on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But God judges those who are outside. So people who aren't part of the church, God takes care of them. He gives us the responsibility to take inside of our walls, to take care of what happens in the church. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person, which means that you have to judge right and wrong in the church. You need to be able to look at your church family and realize that's right, that's wrong. We're going to deal with this situation. We're going to solve that problem. And in so doing, we realize that we need to handle the judgment ourselves because God commands us to. And so chapter 6, the first 11 verses deal specifically with how to do this. Now look at um, first verse. It says this, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. That's really going to be where he kind of launches off. He's asking If there's a problem in the church that like the cops haven't shown up to your house for that is between you and another Christian, are you going to the law to sue or to prosecute those people? Or are you, are you just going to deal with it inside the church? And the answer that Paul wants them to answer is that we deal with our own problems. We don't give it to outside people. And he goes, he does a great job explaining why we need to do that. And we're going to walk through that piece by piece tonight. So if you see on your notes, the key takeaway Our local church handles our own problems. Our own problems. And you see under there, it says four questions to ask yourself. Number one, who judges you? Let's continue. Verses one through four. Let's read those together and then we'll break them down. Dare any of you having a matter against another... Go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint as judges those who are the least esteemed in your church? That seems like a funny question to leave off on. Let's break down first what's going on in the passage. Um, like, why is he asking these questions? What, what is he talking about? Well, he says, if you, if you have a problem with somebody else in the church, then why would you go to the law that is outside the church? And that seems on the surface to make sense. Let's keep going. In verse 2, he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? This refers to when Jesus comes back. When Jesus is on the physical throne during the thousand-year reign, the millennium reign, there will be basically two different types of humans on earth. There's those who are the redeemed, who have their sanctified, their pure bodies, their eternal, everlasting bodies, and those who are being born into the world, the physical people 
who can still procreate, the people who can still marry, the people who still will die. And if they are believers, will get their resurrected body that will last forever along with us. And if they don't, then they will be cast into hell until eventually at the end of the thousand year reign, we get to see Jesus defeat all of hell and Armageddon and all of that. But in the meantime, our job is to judge the world. We are going to have command over angels. Now, I think that's just awesome. Have you ever thought about how much power an angel has? Remember the story of Gideon? How many people were there? Like 35,000 people down in the, or 350,000. It's some insane amount of people. It's a lot of people. And they're down in the battle, or they're down in the valley, I mean. And Gideon didn't even touch them. And one angel killed them all, all of them. And remember, there was the other story during the famine in Israel. And some lepers were coming up to the enemy outside the village or the city. And um, the enemy was camped outside before they could take over. Basically, what they were doing is they were starving the people inside the video. They're in inside the city, the village. I don't know where video came from. No idea. I'm tired and I haven't even started teaching yet. So they, um, these guys, they were besieging the city. And that means that basically they would make sure no one comes in the city. No one goes out of the city. If you want to go get water, too bad, because now you're stuck inside the city because you're the enemy. Unless the city either comes out and fights like men and dies inevitably, or they just surrender. And we're going to stay out here. And these, these besiegements could last for years. I'm talking like four or five or six or seven years, sometimes for a well-fortified city. And you can see that all throughout history. There's a common tactic in the Middle East, but also in Europe later on in the Middle Ages and things like that. So they were besieging the city. And remember the seven lepers, they came up into the city, um, into the, the encampment outside of the city. So remember, lepers weren't allowed in it, especially during a time of already weak immunity because they didn't already have enough food. So lepers were outside the city and they walked through the encampment outside the city because there were no soldiers there. An angel had come and scared them all away. They all like, like these people lost battles because of just one angel or one little group of angels. Can you imagine what commanding angels will be like for us? What judging angels will be like for us? Like we're going to have an immense amount of power. Why can't we just deal with the little things that are here on earth? If you and I have a problem with one another, that's such an inconsequential thing compared to the amount of power that angels have. And we're going to be over them. So, so what is our problem with dealing with the everyday problems of life? especially with other people who are Holy Spirit filled and led. Like that's just, even the angels are amazed at the fact that God would reside with men, that God would reside within men. It's such a, a, a no brainer. It seems like in Paul's opinion that we would just judge the basic things of life. So then he continues on verse four. If you then have judgments, he's going to ask a question and I'm going to explain it because it didn't, I didn't make, I didn't understand it at first. If you then have judgments dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint as judges those who are the least esteemed in the church? So let's, uh, let's make a little real-life scenario to make it make sense. Um, if, if I did something mean to Caleb, 
maybe I slandered Caleb behind his back. And this was in a way that could be technically legally prosecuted. He could probably legally sue me and win the case. So if I did something against Caleb, I hurt him in some way, he could go to a judge and he could get his suing money out of me, his lawsuit. But he could also handle it within the church. Now, if we were to handle it in the church, let's just let's think for a second. Are we going to put the least mature Christian in charge of the case? Would we find the person who's been saved the shortest amount of time? Would we ask someone who knows almost nothing about the Bible to preside over this case? No, that would be foolish. Why would we do that? The real question is not, would we put someone who's young in the faith over the case? The real question is, why would we put someone who's not even a Christian over the case? Does that make sense? That's what Paul is saying, is whenever you guys go to the law and you handle issues between one another, you should be able to handle it as Christians. Why are you taking it outside of the church and dealing with people who aren't even Christians? You're putting other Christians' fate in the hands of people who don't believe, who are not Holy Spirit-led. Why would we do that? It'd be silly of us to do that. Now, the question is, who judges you? And the answer can be someone who is not a Christian, and we give authority to those people, or we give authority to people who are Christians, who do desire reconciliation, who do desire God's will to be done within the church and within our own lives. So whenever you have a problem with somebody, whenever there is a sin committed against you, to whom do you listen? To whom do you submit? To whose authority do you bow? I hope it's a Christian's. And I hope it's not the least of the Christians. I hope it's someone who is a wise man. As we're going to see in a second, verse or number two in your notes, it says, are you worthy to judge? Are you worthy to judge? So we asked the sarcastic question, I mean, would you guys put the least mature Christian in charge of the case? No. So why would you put a non-Christian in charge of the case? Then verse five, he turns the table and he goes, I speak to your shame. Is it true that there's not even one wise man among you who shall be able to judge between his brothers? Isn't there one wise man who knows God's word? Isn't there somebody who understands God's heart on what is right and what is wrong? I can think of a dozen <coughs> wise men back in, uh, like in our church, I, can, I think all of us here, we know God's word and we know what he wants. I think at Open Door, imagine somebody had done something wrong to another Christian at Open Door and Brother Bernard were put on in charge of the case. If Suppose I'd done something wrong to Caleb, and I knew that Brother Bernard was going to be the next step. So like Caleb comes to me, hey, listen, you did this to me. Uh, you shouldn't have done it. Biblically, it's wrong. And then now it's in my court to either apologize or not. I don't care what I feel I'm justified to do. At that point, if he says, all right, listen, if you don't like get this right, I'm going to Brother Bernard and we're going to deal with it. Like, I'm done. Okay, there's nothing at that point like that. I don't know. I just need to get it right. And I think the seriousness, the sobriety of having another person who is a wise Christian, someone who knows, obviously in his case, the law, but more importantly, God's law, the amount of gravity that that brings to the situation, it makes you want to think, am I really in sin Am I really being stubborn or am I really okay? Am I really justified? 
I think when we think through the lens of what if someone wiser than I was, what if a Christian who is more Christian, so to speak, than I was, were to be over this case, what would he see in me? Is there not one wise man among you? But then the question is, would you be counted as a wise man among the church? Would God be able to trust you to preside over the cases and the conflicts within the church because you do know his law? because you are spirit-filled, because you do love him? I don't know. I think you have to answer that on your own. And I think on the outside, the church can see who you are on the outside. But at the same time, if God calls you to do something for his service, then he also gives you peace to follow his service. And if he doesn't give you that peace, then you know, like if you can't immediately answer, yes, God could use me right now to solve a problem between other people in our church then do whatever it takes to get to the point where he could trust you with that. Because that's important. It's important to be filled with the Spirit and to be surrendered to his law. Look in verse 6. He says, But brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers at that. So he goes back to the contrast. You wouldn't even put, you would not put the least mature Christian in charge of your case. But yet you guys fight against each other, Corinth, and you don't even do it with Christians. You do it with unjust judges as your ruler. You do it in front of people who are not saved. So what is wrong? So the question is, who judges you? The second question is, are you worthy to judge? Are you the kind of people that God, or the kind of person that God could trust to come out with the right judgment on a case between Christians? Number three, what do you value? What do you value? Verse 7 says, now therefore it is already an utter failure, (laughs) not at all weak words, very strong. It's already an utter failure for you that you go to law one against another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And the questions really under what do you value? Letter A, do you value getting your outcome, getting your outcome, or representing the kingdom? Do you value getting your outcome, which is whatever you want? So that job that that someone stole from you or the the pay that you deserve, that you did the work for, or the, the name that somebody tried to steal away from you or they slandered you or something. If they do a wrong against you, you can try to undo their wrong by suing them or by getting them locked up or by sending a message with a lawyer knocking on their door at night. Hey, you better not do this to Christians because this is what us Christians are going to do back to you if you try to hurt us. That's not fair. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. So do you want your outcome or do you want to represent the kingdom? Because at the end of the day, Christians, it doesn't matter what we do. It's still a testimony of Christ. And if we do the right thing, that speaks volumes of Jesus. If we do the wrong thing, it speaks volumes of Jesus. And so when we can be gracious to people, even when they have directly wronged us, we speak about our Savior. And he speaks through us and gives us the grace to serve him the way that we should. So what do you value? Do you value getting your outcome or do you value representing the kingdom? And then number four, who are you now? He asks a masterful question. Look in verse, uh, 
Let's look in verse 8, and then we'll run into it, verses 9, 10, 11. Verse 8. But you yourselves do wrong and defraud, and do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, or I'm sorry, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual or sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And watch this, verse 11. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. The real question is, who are you now? Because the old person, the only way that you could solve problems before you were saved was to take it to law, was to take it to a court, was to sue, was to litigate. Now, though, you're bought with a price, and that price is the same price paid for the other person that you're angry at. So who are you now? Because if you just go back and remember, there's probably some things in your past that people don't like. There's probably some ways that you've wronged some people, and yet Jesus paid for those but he also paid for the things that you would do in the future. Things that you're doing today, the things that you'll do tomorrow, years to come. But he also did that for the other person that you're angry at, including this. And if God can forgive them, because remember, at the end of the day, all sin is against God. That sin against you is really just a rebellion against God. Remember, we don't fight against principalities, or we don't fight against people. We fight against the principalities and the powers of this world, the, the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. We're not against kings and kingdoms. We're not against individuals and friends or enemies. We're against satanic influence, and we're for spiritual good. And so when we put it in that perspective, that person's sin against me is not really against me. It's against my Savior. If Jesus can pay for that, he's the one that they sin against. Why could I not? So what that does is it puts it in perspective. And remember, he says that these kind of people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And let's go through that list quickly. It says, do not be deceived in verse 9, neither the sexually immoral. We talked about that all last chapter. Somebody who does something sexually wrong, they think thoughts sexually wrong, they make decisions that are sexually wrong, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, anyone who chooses to place something above God. Something that you cannot give up to God is now God for you. So if you can't give it up, it's God, it needs to die. Then adulterers, someone who has sexual relationships with another person while one or both parties are in a relationship while they are both married. Nor male prostitutes, somebody who is a, a man whore, somebody who throws their bodies out there for anybody. I think of like the frat boy kind of idea. Somebody who's, maybe they're strong, maybe they're handsome. They can get out there and they can sleep around with anybody because girls fawn over him. That's a male prostitute. That is someone who prostitutes himself and just sells himself to the world because he doesn't care who Jesus is. Male prostitutes, nor homosexuals. Somebody who likes somebody of the same gender. 
That is not somebody who inherits the kingdom of God. And the Bible is not in any way unclear about that. Homosexuality is a sin that God has cursed many people for. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. Nor thieves, someone who steals from another, nor covetous. And the word here, covetous, I learned this this week. It's more than just wanting something that you don't have. It's not getting enough of something. And so you might have had a taste for, um, let's think of it in like an addictive sense maybe. So you might have had a taste for a smoke one time. And you liked it a little bit. And then you thought about it some more. And then that becomes over time an addiction. You are coveting, anytime that you're not actively smoking, you're coveting another smoke. That's what that means. So yes, of course, whenever you don't have something, you want it. You know, the typical sense of coveting. But the word here is really you want more of something that you don't have. Anything that you can be addicted to, anything that you don't have that you want more of, that is covetous. And that does not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor drunkards, nor revilers. That's someone who speaks ill either in front of your back, to your face, or behind your back. Nor extortioner, someone who, who gets more than they deserve. Remember we talked about that last week. None of these people inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. That means that who we are is not who we were. Because of that, we can forgive because we have been forgiven. We can forgive them because they already are forgiven. And the only thing that's not forgiving them is Satan and us. And so would I rather be like God who has forgiven them and who's cast their sin from east to west, someone like God who chooses not to remember the sin, even though he has perfect recall? Or do I want to be like Satan who throws it up in God's face moment by moment? God cursed them. God, God punished them for what they've done. God hurt them. God, they don't deserve your love. God, they don't deserve your mercy. God, I know you died for them, but I don't want them to feel like that. God, I want them to feel guilty every moment of their lives. Why would I align myself with Satan's desire like that when he has paid the price for them and for me? Such were some of you. Such was I. We all have things that are short of the glory of God. And so do the other people who wrong us. If Jesus can pay for their sin, I can surely choose to move past it. We handle judgment. Who judges us? Do we allow ourselves to judge ourselves as Christians? Do we allow God's word to regulate how we act as a church and to, to solve the disputes between us? Or do we choose to use human knowledge, the wisdom of the world? Do we choose to throw this up literally in this case to human courts, to a government that doesn't know God, to people who, who've never tasted of salvation, or do we choose to handle things ourselves? Are you worthy to judge? The people who judge in our church will be people who know God's word. They'll be people who revere God's word and who care about his will and his law. Are you one of those people? Could you be one of those people today if there were to arise an issue between one of us or two of us? Could God count on you to make the right decision? What do you value? When someone does wrong to you, do you value getting your outcome, fixing the solution your way in a vengeful way that gets whatever you want? Or are you more focused on how does this reflect the kingdom of God? And then who are you now? Because who you are now is redeemed. 
If you see yourself as redeemed, then you can also ask, who are they now? That puts a totally new spin on when people are wronging me, on when people are judging me. And now I can look at them through the eyes of mercy, not the eyes of judgment, not the eyes they hate, but those that love. I hope that that's what characterizes our church. Maybe not today, because I don't think we have any litigations going on between us. But I do know that the more people we have, the more potential. And I know that one misunderstood phrase, one hateful, spiteful slur of the tongue, and now people can be tempted to go to law. And let me just just show you this real quick too. The more people who get saved in our ministry equals the more young, immature believers who don't know the law yet, who don't know God's will, the law of grace. And the more people that we have like that, the more potential for this. And that's what happened in Corinth. And I hope that our church is full of new Christians down the road. That also means that with new Christians also come some old habits and some old tendencies. Maybe tonight what we talked about is nothing new to you. Maybe you knew Christians don't sue. Christians don't go to court if they don't have to. But other people might not know that yet. And so we need to be clear on how does our church handle conflict? Because this is how. When someone asks you, you think back to that day when the phone rang and when the gravy got delivered, and you think, Christians don't sue. I think 1 Corinthians 6 tells us how to handle this. So let's go look there. If we can do that, then our church is going to be wise. Our church will avoid problems that God never designed us to have, and we are going to mitigate any, any of those issues. So I hope that's where your heart is, and I hope that's where we will continue to be, and that we'll lead that direction. Let's pray, and then we'll go. God, thank you for today and the opportunity to study your word.